Good evening and welcome. Hi, good evening. Sorry to keep you waiting. Doing nothing. Worst thing in the world could happen, right? How's the sound? Sound okay? Okay. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the paths of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. So, tonight we have uh, yet again a lot of uh, very fun readings by Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche. So, any comments before we dive in? Okay, diving head first, maybe, maybe with a somersault or a twist or two. Here we go. So this is uh, Ahmad Package 12. We went through the texts by other teachers, the excerpts rather. And then we come to this thing called the Tastes of Enlightenment. Perfect for tonight, you know, where we're going to eat all sorts of fun things. And this is on page 7 of the package for um, class 12. And if you remember, the uh, topic for class 12, or topics rather, are the union of shamatha and vipassana, and then the different categories of shamatha and vipassana. And so... Um, we'll sort of see some readings that uh, 
go uh, back and forth between those two topics. And uh, in Trungpa Rinpoche's presentation, he doesn't quite go through the uh, technical variety of practices that Jomaka Kongchul goes through in terms of the uh, categorizations of shamatha and vipassana. But instead, he uh, he um, sh- uh, presents how shamatha and vipassana connect to uh, practices such as the four measurables in the form of loving kindness and compassion, and the six paramitas, and the uh, four nundro or preliminary practices, and the four yogas of Mahamudra, sort of covering the whole gamut of everything. Okay, Taste of Enlightenment. This one he talks about uh, bodhicitta. And so this is from Volume 2, uh, Profound Treasury of, all, of uh, Ocean of Dharma, Volume 2, The Bodhisattva Path of Wisdom and Compassion. And here he's talking about bodhicitta initially and uh, presenting this core fundamental concept that uh, in the cultivation of bodhicitta, which has two aspects, wisdom and compassion. Compassion, or heart, comes first. And then he launches into a little background in the second paragraph in the Hinayana. We have many. We've had, we may have had a glimpse of gentleness, goodness, and precision, but we never had a taste of the mind clicking in and awakening on the spot, which presumably is uh, bodhicitta. And he says, as it should. So that's what we should be doing with our mind, or that's what our mind should be doing with us. That has not yet happened in the Hinayana, but in the Mahayana it is actually happening. That is why it is very important for us to do to do what? Shamatha Vipassana. <laughs> what else? <laughs> over and over again. It's amazing, like when you go through the profound treasury and the different volumes, he just like keeps coming back to Shamatha Vipassana over and over and over again. Um, so it's important for us to join mindfulness and awareness, and here we have them uh, translated as mindfulness and awareness. In Shamatha Vipassana, the process of training takes place in your heart, not in your head, not in your belly. It's not an athletic approach. You're training yourself so that you can be wakened from drowsiness, deep sleep, the samsaric world of ignorance. But you are all awake, awake already, which is why it's possible to notice that you have fallen asleep. That's pretty cool. So, and you can tune yourself into this awakened state of being by practice of arousing, arousing bodhicitta. It never quite comes back to like what rousing bodhicitta is other than maybe shamatha and vipassana. Interestingly, let's see. Shamatha brings maitri and a simple and kind attitude towards yourself, which is the essence of the beginning of the practice of meditation is non-judgmental, accepting uh, gentleness with whatever arises, and we all know that lots of weird stuff arises, so we appreciate how important that attitude, and Vipassana brings karuna, a compassionate attitude towards others. Now, I've never seen any other teacher correlate these two, but he does in a number of places. So joining Shamatha Vipassana brings about the realization of bodhicitta, when concentration and awareness, so here we have concentration instead of mindfulness. 
you know, often he puts down uh, concentration or separates it from mindfulness as uh, different. But here he uses the term. When they're working together for a fraction of a second, you may have a taste of what enlightenment might be. This glimpse is highly possible, even by suggestion. It's an interesting idea that uh, you can sort of suggest somebody into experiencing a flash of enlightenment, which uh, I think is how transmission might work. But uh, anyway, I wouldn't know. You might find yourself with no discursive thoughts when you discover that your unwholesome discursive thoughts have been pacified and subjugated. There might be a gap a pure gap of the absolute ideal state of mind that might occur to you. It's not hypothetical, but real. When discursive thoughts are liberated, you may try to cover up that gap, disguising it as absent-mindedness. From Due to our habitual pattern, if we have a gap, we think, oh, we're just like spacing out. But you may be unable to cover it up, which is lucky for, if, for you are having an actual glimpse of bodhicitta. So uh, the pacification of discursive thoughts is shamatha and the ability to be present in the gap to be aware in the gap is vipassana for everyone without exception such a glimpse is always possible at some point you realize that it's more than a glimpse more than a possibility you realize that bodhicitta is not a theory or a metaphysical concept but a reality it's more like rain clouds gathering in the sky. It's the actual rain. So this is a common image for bodhicitta. When the conditions are right, the rain comes down, meaning when the sky is thick enough with uh, humidity and water and temperature are just right, the rain happens. And uh, those features of the environment are analogies for our state of being. So again, uh, a few pages later, the soft heart of Mahayana can only be developed by t paying attention to your existence and your state of being by means of Shamatha and Vipassana. Mahayana experience evolves from being in a state of tranquility as well as by gentleness to yourself and others. And the only way to develop that is by being fully aware and mindful. So the state of compassion and love grows out of awareness. little comment about the term love and still we say Maitri and Karuna so Maitri loving kindness Sanskrit is Maitri common English translation of loving kindness the primary glimpse of experience that's closest to love is Maitri or loving kindness in Tibetan Champa Jampa it's pronounced way different than it looks Jampa but um it's being kind and gentle to oneself. Maitri arises as the result of shamatha discipline. When we begin to be very precise with ourselves, we experience wakefulness and gentleness, which is interesting in uh, some uh, aspects of life. Precision is affiliated with an aggressive sort of quality of like being very picky and... Uh, stern and hard but here the precision leads to gentleness and wakefulness in shamatha according to Trump Rimshe. at this Hinayana level your attitude towards discipline is acute and precise but at the bodhisattva level you begin to relax you know so it's interesting that he says this in the Hinayana you're trying to liberate one person yourself and in the Mahayana you're trying to liberate everybody and yet you relax. What's that about? 
seems a little contradictory. But anyway, that relaxation is a form of Maitreya, loving-kindness. When you are free from ego fixation altogether, you gain some kind of relief. So there's some sense of uh, realizing that you don't have to push. You don't have to, like, push to make things happen. But if you relax and, and step back, then you might be able to shed a little bit of the ego that's otherwise going on all the time. You realize you don't have to be all that intense and tight. When you let go of ego fixation, you develop freedom and relaxation. As an automatic response to that freedom and relaxation, you develop gentleness and compassion. Compassion in the sense of opening up with warmth, sympathy, tenderness, and understanding to others and with an attitude of uh, wanting to share the understanding of how suffering arises and ceases. With Maitri, you're actually trying to confront the ego directly, to insult the ego. <laughs> that may seem aggressive, but it's always good for you to insult your ego, so it's okay to be aggressive towards your ego, and that's loving-kindness. Maitri is known as the source of all dharmas because Maitri is the basis of losing the ego. It's the starting point. Often they say doubt is the starting point. When you doubt the ego... But uh, I guess that doubt comes about by having a sense of uh, gentleness and appreciation and acceptance. And then from there it grows. By losing the ego, you automatically give birth to kindness towards yourself, toward yourself, and gentleness to others. It's important to understand that by losing the ego, you're becoming benevolent. You realize that caring for others is intrinsic and so forth. With Maitri, it's possible for even ordinary people to appreciate enlightenment. And because of this Maitri, you begin to awaken to your Buddha nature, and you're awake, you awaken, you can awaken rather your ability to be in love. And he goes on about uh, everybody has the ability to fall in love and so forth, and uh, to love others. And uh, And it goes on further and further with uh, the quality of Maitri, and which I'm going to skim over. I hope that's okay. Karuna, compassion. The second aspect of love is karuna or compassion. Interesting way of presenting it that there's two aspects to love. Loving kindness, which he uh, uh, focuses primarily on oneself initially. Interesting. Just uh, had a, a moment of uh, consideration there. Usually, usually he focuses Maitri on oneself and compassion on others, but here he seems to be presenting them more as a uh, matter of degree. Compassion in Tibetan Yingjie, noble heart. Because we feel gentleness to ourselves, here we go. Maitri is focused on oneself. We're able to feel compassionate to others. We begin to experience vipassana, to be aware of our environment. So, affiliating uh, loving kindness with the mindful, the precision and non-judgmental um, attention to everything going on that occurs with mindfulness, and then affiliating uh, compassion to others 
with Vipassana, the awareness of the, of other, of environment, of the uh, what's going on around whatever object we place our attention on, the context, the larger, bigger picture, Vipassana awareness. We see that our friends, relatives, and the people around us are suffering and they need help. We see that our building is beginning to have cracks in its walls. So this analogy of being in a building, looking, basically looking around at our environment, paying more attention to the environment than oneself because we've lessened the fixation on our self and our own situation. So we first learn how to love ourselves with the help of shamatha and discipline, and from that we begin to develop Vipassana, so that our attention is not stolen by distractions or surprises, which is the panoramic quality of awareness. Therefore, we begin to develop good compassion, an interesting way of correlating these two qualities of Maitri and Karuna with shamatha and Vipassana. Maitri is the way to overcome aggression. It's the mentality of egolessness. And Karuna, compassion liberates us from the ignorance so that we know how to conduct our affairs and know how to relate with our world at large. And this is the, the overriding scheme is that Maitri helps us overcome aggression. Maitri and Shamata overcome aggression. Karuna and Vipassana overcome ignorance or uproot ignorance. First we tame ourselves, and after that we develop bodhicitta, compassion towards others, our world. Um, therefore, until we have Maitri and Karuna, it's not possible to experience complete bodhicitta. Therefore, we need to work with shamatha and vipassana. Similarly, in this excerpt, another 35 pages later, in the Mahayana, there's a quality of wholesomeness which comes from shamatha. Vipassana and the union of the two. Shamatha leads to freedom from aggression. It brings gentleness, maitri, kindness to oneself. Vipassana leads to freedom from ignorance, clarity, intelligence, and the combination of the two results in wholesomeness. That's how to develop an enlightened person. As a chemist would, you put in the appropriate ingredients and boom. Shamatha Vipassana practice is utterly important in all three yanas, so you should not drop it. Otherwise, you might find yourself behaving calmly in the Hinayana, kindly in the Mahayana, and then freaking out completely in the Vajrayana. Ah, with mindfulness practice, you do not behave differently in each yana. It's not that you graduate from the first grade and then get into the second and third. It's more like making butter out of milk. In the Hinayana, you make butter from milk. You find that you have something called butter make milk left to drink. In the Mahayana, you drink that buttermilk. And in the Vajrayana, you enjoy the butter itself. <laughs> Funny analogy. Joining Shamatha precision and calmness with uh, Vipassana awareness brings the realization that the world is not attacking us. It's no longer an obstacle. It's actually helpful to you. This is the beginning of entering into the Mahayana, which brings the possibility of egolessness. You know, he's been talking about the Hinayana and Shamatha as overcoming egolessness, but now he's uh, indicating that the Mahayana is the possibility of overcoming egolessness. And, and we've seen before, and we'll see later, this distinction of the, the different gradations of or, or uh, sort of uh, different levels of understanding of egolessness and how 
we achieve a certain uh, level of understanding of egolessness in the Hinayana and a complete understanding of egolessness through Mahayana. Uh, let's see. Instead of hanging on to oneself, trying to grasp me and mine, as you could let go by means of shamatha and vipassana, you could loosen up a little bit more. So mindfulness, freedom from aggression when you practice mindfulness. Instead of simply trying to be mindful, you have to tame your aggression. The more you tame your aggression, the more mindfulness you develop. So this this notion that um, uh, shamatha, um, the, the attention to detail and precision results in a calm, peaceful state of being, which subdues aggression and part of that that he doesn't say here but says in other places is that uh, the expectation of achieving something in meditation is is of the essence of aggression and uh, so shamatha practice goes hand in hand with letting go of uh, forcing ourselves sort of trying to force ourselves to experience something through the technique the more you tame your aggression, the more mindfulness you develop. If you're so energized that you're unable to concentrate or have difficulty paying attention to details, those are actually underlying aggression. Now, many of us may not like that statement because many of us are agitated a lot. And we don't like hearing that our agitation is aggression because we feel more like our agitation is from fear. But... I think he's saying that the the agitation comes from he skips the fear part, but I think that in other places he talks about how the fear is coming comes from uh, not being willing to accept the reality of things like impermanence and egolessness and suffering, and so that that unwillingness to accept uh, manifests initially as fear. Uh, but it, it actually has the quality of aggression in it. And that's the agitation. And that's why we feel anxious or stressed out a lot of the time. Many of us were speak for myself. The more you tame your aggression, the more mindfulness. If uh, Let's see. Generally speaking, yeah. aggression. Yes, ma'am? Well, it seems like um, uh, uh, aggression comes out of a sense of fear and meant you know that sense of defending yourself or no yes yes totally i i, I yes. was trying to uh, express that i guess uh-huh. i failed yes totally so it seems kind of logical to yeah okay very much and for that to manifest as a agitation of body and mind mm not being comfortable with what is. Um, let's see. And then, uh, if you're so ener- energized that you're unable to pay attention to details, those are the results. Sorry, I said that. Generally speaking, aggression tends to come up in the form of boredom. Our usual preoccupations aren't working to protect us from the fear of egolessness. Because you're bored, you want to find some way of occupying yourself other than what you're doing on the spot, which is watching your breath, eating food, or whatever. 
Aggression is an obstacle to mindfulness. If you're pushed to follow your breath or to watch your thoughts, you're bound to get angry. Such aggression is completely inevitable. So this forceful quality of practice is counterproductive. Aggression affects your span of attention. It's the reason you cannot still sit still for a few minutes, more than a few minutes, why you fidget, why you're irritated, why you have to bring up the pain in your back, your knees. This is really an unpleasant one where it's like, you know, okay, so the pain in my body that I experience when I'm sitting is actually due to aggression. Triggered by aggression, the intelligence of boredom is manifesting itself. It's a boredom, the, the intelligence, boredom has an intelligence. It's sort of like a f red flag. Your subconscious gossip tells you don't obey any of those rules. You should be an individual. Do anything you want. <laughs> you don't have to follow your breath and sit still. And that's the voice of aggression manifesting through impatience and boredom. But with mindfulness practice, you develop gentleness and non-aggression. Oh, similar uh, or uh, on the other hand, awareness is uh, the freedom from ignorance. It's trickier. Vipassana is trickier than shamatha. That's a, quite an interesting phrase, isn't it? Vipassana is trickier than shamatha. That could be a good tagline, maybe, for this course. <laughs> Vipassana, trickier than shamatha. Because in order to pay greater attention to more details, you need to expand yourself further. To be aware of what is around, you have to become less self-centered. Conventional approach to awareness is based on the idea that if you do your best, you can win a gold medal. But in the Mahayana, we don't think of awareness in terms of having a purpose. You're simply trying to pay more attention to the environment around you. Then he gives the example of Oriyoki practice, which is this uh, contemplative way of eating that uh, he imported from the Japanese tradition and had us do it seminaries and dhatans and so forth. Very cool practice. Uh, let's see. Paying attention to things like the details of what's going on is uh, it's better than paying attention to oneself. Good old Joe Schmidt. You don't have to handle two things at once. You can drop this and just pay attention to that. So uh, while you're doing things such as cleaning your bowl, we forget about ourselves, forgetting the self. There's a famous quote by Dogen, and I think about like forgetting the self. To study the self is to forget the self, something like that. While you're eating in that way, there's no ego of self. On a simple level, that's one way of realizing egolessness. If we have awareness in whatever you do, it's always you always have a sense of basic decency. It's hard for me to say. You don't cheat. You don't do things just because they're traditional, and you don't just do something this year simply because you did it last year. That's a tough one. So many places you go to work, people like, oh, because we always did it that way. <laughs> you always try to practice your discipline as genuinely and honestly as possible to the point where the honesty and genuineness begin to hurt. This is uh, such hurting is regarded as good. If you begin to get hurt by being genuine, it's the beginning of warriorship. Wow, there's a whole other angle here. This is like the conscientiousness. You know, when we looked at shamatha as having three qualities of mindfulness, uh, knowing, or 
awareness and then conscientiousness this is like the culmination of the conscientiousness the decency and that leads to the that provides the basis for doing the exchanging of oneself and others that gets formalized in the practice of Tonglen okay basic training and uh, let's see to work for others you first have to develop composure if you have basic stability when you try to help others I'm sorry if you have no basic stability no like shamatha foundation when you try to help others they will not benefit from your help if you're trying to prevent someone from falling out a window you will both go out to prevent that you have to stay inside so you can pull them back in order to do this training in shamatha vipassana is necessary with that training you're able to maintain yourself pro properly that's why it's so important to develop the hinayana self-discipline first before going on to Mahayana vision Shamatha Vipassana mindfulness and awareness allow you to be stable and precise mindfulness allows you to become stable develop tranquility and peace awareness allows you to be the precise suddenly the precise part goes with Vipassana instead of mindfulness be able to pay attention to details usually that's part of mindfulness but uh, you know basically the the uh, the hypothesis of this course of myself is that Rimshi is presenting Vipassana as this quality of uh, Samprajanya in Sanskrit of Shamatha practice the quality of knowing or, or uh, um, introspection and that's primarily how he's presenting Vipassana out of that stability and precision naturally arises the quality of gentleness and kindness and attitude that you will never cause harm to others and this creates the basis for the Mahayana discipline and, and so forth so the ground of Mahayana comes from Shamatha Vipassana through Shamatha Vipassana you become like a good thoroughbred horse responsive and well trained you understand egolessness the four noble truths and have achieved a really, relatively good state of control over your distraction but it is possible that you lack real conviction so you're unable to fulfill the practice completely hmm. you do need to have mental discipline and control over your mind but in the Mahayana it's necessary to develop a greater level of commitment no matter how contemplative the practice of Shamatha Vipassana may be, there's still there's still an element of mechanicalness. Therefore, it's absolutely important to be awakened and to be encouraged to join the Mahayana path. So this notion that Shamatha Vipassana take you up to that um, uh, precipice, so to speak, of entering into the uh, vast realm of the Mahayana, the uh, bodhicitta of ultimate and relative shamatha vipassana experience and treading on the mahayana baths are commentary complementary to one another as a result of them your shinjong are flexible you climb rocks you can swim capable of doing anything no longer rigid and tough it, it will you will lose weight and you'll look younger <laughs> He doesn't usually like promote these, this sort of marketing way of looking at things. It's unusual. You can climb rocks and you can swim. Uh, 
when you're no longer rigid and tough, you, when you stop trying to hold on to things, when you stop clinging to like yourself and this or that in your world, stop trying to make everything meaningful to yourself. When you no longer want to do everything in your old original samsaric style, but all that has fallen apart. That's quite a lot, by the way. You're no longer rigid and tough. You stop holding, you stop clinging on to things and stop trying to like make everything make sense and stop trying to do everything in your old habitual way. Then, with those simple steps, having accomplished those simple steps, you become soft, gentle, and pliable. And then you, so soft, you become like a worm. <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't be laughing. Um, hang on, a, yes, sir. You're, you're a worm that can swim and climb rocks. <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's see. I found this to be an interesting statement just here. This it's not particularly on topic, but. Um, he talks about the necessity for these uh, as, as foundational disciplines, and even Mozart had to go learn music. Likewise, tulkus, incarnate tulkus, may be very highly developed, but they still have to go through an extremely excruciating, painful training. He's talking about himself, right? And he's talking about you know these highly evolved beings that are like more highly involved than the average Joe Schmidt, and uh, they have to go th through this training that's excruciating and painful, more so than other people. That was my personal experience. Interesting. Oh, another interesting statement. Sitting practice is important, but attachment to it can become a danger. So at some point you have to let go of the uh, sort of fixation on the, the uh, refuge of sitting practice, if that's something that you're taking refuge in. In a, in a sort of escapist way. There is a greater world in your little meditation world, your little meditation hall, and your little meditation cushion. There are other meditation halls. There are saddles and chairs and green grass. Anyway. Um, In the Hinayana practice of taming the mind, you're working with the various forms of unmindfulness. In the Mahayana, since your mind has already been tamed, you can now work on training the mind. Interesting distinction. Taming the monkey mind and then training it. And uh, so first you tame the mind by means of shamatha, and then you train the mind by means of Mahayana contemplative, contemplative practice such as Tonglen. Then he affiliates shamatha Vipassana with the different paramitas patience so he's in he's, he's going through the paramitas uh, which he did many times in the seminary transcripts in uh, judy leaf and her miraculous feat of editing these trans those transcripts into the what we see today put them all together and that's in the third one he starts to point out this pattern in uh, patience sorry the the third one yes um the Parmita patience continues this pattern of alternating shamatha vipassana through the Parmitas. That is the first Parmita, so he backs up because he didn't mention this earlier. Generosity is connected with shamatha. 
discipline, it's connected with Vipassana. Not necessarily what you would ordinarily think. The first paramita, generosity, is, is, is the path of seeing, is enlightenment. And usually it's like that's where like prajna intelligence happens. But okay. Third paramita, we're back to shamatha. <coughs> Patience, that makes sense, definitely. And uh, Patience is the way to quell the heat of aggression by following the way of shamatha tranquility and peacefulness. Highly advanced level of shamatha. And as we go on to higher levels of the paramitas, the standard of shamatha and vipassana escalates. So the paramita patience involves a higher level of shamatha than the paramita of generosity. The sequence of the paramitas is significant. Generosity. This is cool. This is not totally on topic, but... Uh, his presentation of the progression of the paramitas is neat. Generosity is the stripping off process and discipline is the remaining and loneliness. Having gone through those two, we find our situation unbearable, as if we were being beaten by hundreds of people. All kinds of pain come up in life, not as the result of punishment, but as the result of being generous and disciplined. That's the thanks we get. We actually invite pain by being alone and keeping our discipline. We're like an owl in the daylight, physically and psychically attacked from all directions by visible and invisible forces. Paramita patience means not getting resentful about that. That's a sort of unusual presentation. Uh, another way to look at the paramitas in terms of how paramitas paired up with either shamatha and vipassana and the development of them, shamatha and vipassana alternate six times. So it's shamatha, generosity, vipassana, discipline, shamatha, patience, vipassana, exertion, and then pretty, pretty evidently shamatha is meditation and vipassana is process. And uh, they build upon each other. It's interesting. And let's see. Let's see, the shamatha vipassana in terms of working on the ego. And Hinayana version of taming ego is to cut through sloppiness and wandering mind. But shamatha, which undermines the fundamental mechanism of ego, which is that ego has to maintain itself by providing lots of subconscious gossip and discursive thoughts. Beyond that, vipassana brings awareness of the whole environment into our discipline. It allows us to become less self-centered and more in contact with the world around us, so less reference to me and mindness. So vipassana allows us to cut through our ego. Okay. Now we uh, move into the Vajrayana uh, volume of uh, the profound treasury. I'm going to skip this little guy here. Deeper perception. Oh, uh, well. While talking about human beings using our sense perceptions and developing our behavior patterns in connection with those, then we go beyond that a little bit if we can along with those perceptions that happen to us and the cognizing facilities that we possess we cannot reject that there is deeper perception taking place full perception the full experience of all those perceptions we use our sense perceptions to experience clarity and um, 
ordinary experiences could be regarded as sometimes having a clouding effect. Hearing too much or tasting too much might have a numbing effect, but here we're talking about going beyond that, beyond ordinary perception and experiencing super sound, super smell, and super feeling. This kind of perception can only be experienced by training ourselves in, you have it, shamatha practice, which clears out the cloudiness and brings about precision and sharpness of the perceptions. So this uh, uh, interesting presentation of how shamatha practice leads to heightened perception of our world. we experience the precision of uh, our breath going in and out and walking meditation heals the old toe and that uh, brings out precision that cuts beyond or goes beyond the cloudiness of our normal perceptual framework so meditation brings out practice brings out the supernatural if I may oh let's see through shamatha, the best cognition begins to arise in your system and elevate your sense of existence. And this is sort of like a, an expanded description of uh, the culmination of shamatha vipassana as pliancy or shenjong train, uh, process. Through shamatha, the best cognition begins to arise and elevate your sense of existence. This happens through means of being with your body, breath, mind, and breath through simply surviving on your meditation cushion. Starts in the Hinayana. So even at that point, your path is Tantra already, which is an interesting statement because uh, the technique that he presents, that we present to beginners, is basically a very advanced Vajrayana technique. So like Tantra, the Hinayana's continuity. Um... Clarity and precision come out of that continuity. And, uh, okay, so that leads to, altogether, this leads to the experience of the mandala principle, which is fundamental principle of the uh, uh, Vajrayana, sorry. And then here, the cool presentation of Shamatha Vipassana as indivisible emptiness and luminosity. The experience of the mandala principle is based on having received abhisheka. So an abhisheka, which is empowerment, uh, where we uh, get empowered to do the practice of a certain deity that represents a certain quality of an awakened being. And we get uh, introduced to that quality, that manifestation of awakened being. And we get entered into the mandala of that enlightened energy, that enlightened being which is called the mandala, the world of it, of that being. And uh, it's based on realizing the non-duality of Shamatha Vipassana as the body, speech, and mind of the guru, recognizing that as indivisible Vajra nature. Now, I don't know what those all were, all those big words mean, but I did get the gist of it, is that bringing together Shamatha Vipassana seems to be crucial for the Vajrayana. In discussing mandala, it's important to realize that the discovery of ultimate wisdom, primordial wisdom of Vajrayana, derives from the union of Shamatha and Vipassana, which is sometimes referred to in Vajrayana terms as the indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity. Emptiness is connected with Shamatha, 
for slowly but surely by means of shamatha practice we eliminate the things that are not necessary to us we simplify in a profound way discursive thoughts are not necessary so we avoid them therefore we attain emptiness a certain sense of vacancy luminosity which is clarity mental clarity is connected with vipassana means seeing brightly and clearly by means of the vipassana awareness pick begins to pick up what needs to be done so shamatha vipassana is known as a combination of emptiness and skillful means also emptiness is the shamatha process of eliminating minds occupations and preoccupations and skillful means refers to vipassana awareness which sees all the possibilities of the environment so show as you can see after pages and pages of promoting shamatha vipassana you can see that that's a very powerful discipline and a very definite experience in vajrayana their indivisibility shamatha and vipassana We're not practicing just one or the other, but we're trying to join together emptiness and its brightness, emptiness and its skillfulness. Therefore, indivisible shamatha vipassana is known as ultimate. It's ultimate because we practice it and have achieved the result. We have achieved freedom from the fickleness and duplicity of our minds. In the non-dual experience of shamatha vipassana, we've achieved the ultimate shunyata the emptiness possibilities of shamatha free from all preoccupations and with the vipassana aspect we have achieved brightness and luminosity it's real and definite ultimate wisdom and he gives the term in tibetan for um, uh, this type of wisdom that uh, is tra he's translated as ultimate we can also transform our kleshas through shamatha vipassana. On top of that, it's very helpful to understand the experience of vipassana awareness, shamatha tranquility. Without that, you will have difficulty in relating with the five wisdoms. The five wisdoms are the five basic energies of neurosis, on the one hand, in the samsaric world, and uh, the wisdoms of Buddha nature and the nirvanic side of the equation. All five wisdoms originate from the basic wisdom called Dharma. And the definition of Dharma is passionlessness. The opposites are grasping and holding on to oneself is more important than others. So in this teaching, we are reminded once again that not grasping comes from the Hinaya practice of Shamatha Vipassana. We're reminded that not holding oneself is more important than others comes from the Mahayana practice of exchanging self and others. It is necessary to understand that Shamatha Vipassana are also Vajrayana techniques. Even at the level of Vajrayana, they play a key role. Through them, you realize the sacredness of the world, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and their indivisibility. And at that point, the kleshas could arise. You breathe that in. Then as you breathe out again with the beginning of the out-breath, you surrender, you're holding on. Such as the breath... So, sorry, so as the breath goes out, it's actually transforming the glaciers. At the end of the out-breath, the glaciers are transformed into sacred world. That was a little Vajrayana transmission there, transforming glaciers with the breath and seeing sacred world. So I'm told I wouldn't know. 
Derek? Yes, ma'am. I was wondering if working with the clashes <clears throat> would also be seeing them as empty, like trying to work with experiencing them as empty. That's usually how it is described and presented, definitely, that there's this quality of seeing their emptiness and also experiencing their energy, their mm -hmm. fundamental energy, the, the sort of the two of those together, the idea of empty luminosity. Um, and here he affiliates that with the, the practice of shamatha, of uh, going out with the out-breath and, and letting go. So Interesting. the other would be more of a passion if you're really observing them and trying to see their nature, right? Right. And what I described as being that, see, experience their emptiness and uh, experience their energy, their sort of owner, ownerless energy. Thanks. So how that translates into this, this must be some sort of secret Vajra. <laughs> I have no idea about So then he affiliates Shamatha Vipassana with Nundro. Prostrations are connected with Shamatha. So uh, when you enter into Vajrayana practice, which in Trung Prameshe's trans tradition begins with the transmission called pointing out the nature of the mind, and uh, then you do the foundational practices of Vajrayana, these four foundational practices, which are sort of unusual in that they include things like prostrating. We don't normally do like prostrations at all, much less a lot of them, like a real lot of them, <laughs> like more than a hundred thousand of them. <laughs> it's amazing that people do these things. Uh, and that's shamatha practice. So prostration practice has this shamatha quality. I don't know if any of you have ever done uh, these nundra practices, but you can sort of sense that shamatha is like working with aggression. Sorry, the prostration practice is working with aggression. And uh, so it's pacifying your aggression, which is similar to shamatha. And uh, he describes that. And then uh, with doing the Vajrasattva Mantra, he said you're, exper you're experiencing intrinsic purity and goodness of Vajrasattva and uh, our indivisibility with Vajrasattva. And that uh, realization has a Vipassana quality, which he describes as the general awareness of the environment again. You're completely aware of your blockages and habitual tendencies and neuroses, which is uh, uh, sort of in, uh, solid or common description of Vipassana and through this practice you look into all that and you realize that even having surrendered your arrogance and pride you still have more cleaning up to do so from prostrations you surrender your arrogance and pride and then still you have to purify yourself mandala offering is, is the third nindro practice and that's its shamatha discipline of training your mind not to expect anything in return, but just constantly giving, giving, giving. Therefore, it's related, much related with the out-breath, much more so than any of the other nundro disciplines. A very interesting way of characterizing the out-breath as being affiliated with giving, 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 just going out and offering, offering, offering to our world, offering our out-breath. 
uh, uh, literally and that metaphorically being offering ourselves. Uh, yes. It's interesting to hear two things. One is that uh, giving was associated, uh, generosity was associated with shamatha, and also this mandala of going out and giving is also associated with shamatha. And also, this is another case where it's alternating, right? You have uh, the peas are associated with shamatha, vajrasattva is vipassana, mandala is shamatha, and I, they don't mention guru yoga, but is that? Yeah. Uh, presumably, I mean, he says they, they, they're matched up in that way and they go back and forth. Yeah. I guess I couldn't find where he says that about Guru Yoga, but that is the implication. And then, joining Shamatha Vipassana, through the path, Shamatha discipline produces one kind of experience, and Vipassana experience furthers that. Shamatha aspect of mandala brings about the Vipassana aspect. Here we go, Guru Yoga. So all along the way you alternate Shamatha Vipassana, the development of steadiness and awareness. Steadiness is the way to be on the spot thoroughly and fully as much as possible. It's developed by means of Vajrayana techniques. He means as well as the Hinayana and Mahayana techniques. In the Vajrayana the techniques that uh, develop it are things such as prostrations and mandala offering. So shamatha is the skillful means, the discipline, and that type of discipline tends to bring about the vipassana aspect of Vajrayana practice, which is greater awareness, devotion, and longing for the teacher as the embodiment of enlightened being. Through vipassana, you unify your emotions with your devotion or appreciation of the teacher. That union or bringing together of the teacher and oneself makes it possible for you to work together. And that is the experience of what uh, Tokbagak is the cessation of or stopping of thoughts. By stopping thoughts, we're not talking about becoming zombies. You have to be careful about that. So there's this phrase in, that's common in Vajrayana, non-thought, stopping thought, cutting thoughts. And here is his explanation of that. He says, we cut conceptualization, but the natural functioning mind and general awareness, <coughs> excuse me, still goes on continuously. So it's not like there are actually no, no, there's no mental activity, but it's like we're not invested in the mental activity. We don't, we cut conceptualization. In fact, it's cultivated further by the Vipassana experience. Later on, it becomes the Upaya skillful means of the Vajrayana disciplines as well. So that particular aspect of mind could be sharpened. We sharpen our mind. There is never a need, by the way, for conceptual thinking. Nobody needs it. <laughs> it's absolutely unnecessary because it produces pain and the unnecessary fortifications of ego. This is what conceptual mind is for, to build your ego fortification. It's for me. I. It's about how to be I how to build myself up. There could be a world without I. So he's a little bit down on conceptualization. So nothing good comes from concept, concepts. Well, it seems that way, yeah. <laughs> Definitely seems that way. No good can ever come from... Uh, the Abhisheka experience... The empowerment is a combination of shamatha and vipassana put together. So, so here we have them coming together. After all this alternation of Maitri and Karuna, overcoming aggression and ignorance and the six par uh, loving kindness and compassion and the paramitas and the nundros, 
<coughs> finally, after you complete Nunjo, you receive Abhisheka, and that's where Shamatha and Vipassana come together, the union. At the point you receive Abhisheka, you do not have any separation of these two. When you begin to share your reality with the Vajra Master, when you begin to enter into the Vajra Master's world, your experience becomes dynamic, direct, and basic. I'm sorry to uh, insert all this Vajrayana material from this book. I hope that isn't upsetting to anybody. We generally don't talk about Vajrayana that much, but in fact we do. Uh, you have the solidness and stability of Shalmatan. At the same time, you're not completely solidified and hanging on to your ego. Therefore, an expansion of vision takes place on the level of luminosity. It gives the Sanskrit that luminosity quality goes along with your Vipassana practice. So things become bright and luminous. And at the same time, the Vipassana aspect, and at the same time, they're very steady, direct, and simple, the Shamatha aspect. Uh, let's see. And he talks a bit about Abhisheka practice, which I'll skim over. Just very basic stuff about Abhisheka that I'm sure you all know. And uh, let's see. Luminosity is Vipassana and steadiness is Shamatha. This combination <coughs> shows up in Tibetan terms such as the term for appearance emptiness, the combination of appearance and emptiness, or the indivisibility of appearance emptiness in Tibetan Nong Tong, in which the Tong, there were the emptiness part is Shamatha, and the Nong, or appearance part is Vipassana, shows up in the term Trok Tong, or sound emptiness. The sound part is Vipassana, and again, the emptiness part is Shamatha. Shamatha is an expression of emptiness, and Vipassana is an expression of luminosity. Shamatha is overcoming complications, a kind of cessation or negation, as in emptiness. While Vipassana is something positive and vast. Vipassana is the absence of fixation. It is that which sees egolessness. It is post-meditative awareness. The summary of our whole class here. Let's see. In Vajrayana, it said that skillful means comes out of that luminosity of Vipassana, which is considered to be synonymous with compassion. So Prajna and Shunyata develop into compassion and skillful means. That's the combination of Shalmata and Vipassana on the highest level. Shalmata and Vipassana produce each other automatically. If you have a feeling of tremendous space, that automatically brings a sense of detail and unity of the two. It's the Abhisheka. You cannot have Vajradhara which is the sort of uh, um, deepest level of enlightenment in the Vajrayana without Shamatha and Vipassana. And then Shamatha and Vipassana are also connected with the Trikaya principle, the three uh, manifestations of enlightened being. Shamatha brings Dharmakaya, emptiness aspect, and the practice of Vipassana brings the form emanations of the enlightened being of the Samogakaya and Nirmanakaya. In that way, uh, he's referring to them as the two kayas, the formless kaya of Dharmakaya and the form kayas of Samogakaya and Nirmanakaya. 
it's interesting that at the beginning of the path, we think we're working on a very crude level when we do shamatha practice. We're just learning how to breathe, how to stop our thoughts and things like that. It seems to be quite a primitive level, but in fact, we're actually working with the dharmakaya or with potential dharmakaya, which is very advanced. From day one, we're working on our dharmakaya as we meditate. The dharmakaya is a very high level, particularly from the Vajrayana point of view. It's shnyana dharmakaya, the wisdom dharmakaya, shnana meaning wisdom. So first we have to manifest dharmakaya, and then after that are the post-meditation experiences of awareness practices of the form kayas, which is generally how the enlightenment is, is said to proceed, so to speak, in the Mahayanas, Dharmakaya first, and then Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. We have to rescue the pure strictness of Shamatha by relating with our day-to-day living situation to Vipassana experiences, which, by the way, are luminous and bright. So that was what we went through last week, and that brings us up into this week. And this week we come to the uh, end of the text, class 13, it's a very very lucky number, and the topic tonight is uh, Ribshe's take on the different categories, which we just went through from last week, the accomplishment of Shamatha Vipassana by means of analytical and stabilizing meditation, this naughty subject of what those are, and how they impact our path, and then the three stages of concentration. So, uh, we went through the readings from last class, so we'll dive into the root text, Jamgun Kongchul's presentation from the Treasury of Knowledge on page three. The accomplishment of Shamatha and Vipassana by means of both analyzing and stabilizing meditation. So active and uh, inactive meditation. Shamatha and Vipassana can be equally accomplished by either analytical or stabilizing meditation. Now normally, uh, not normally, but often or commonly, people misconstrue these categories of analytical and stabilizing meditation. And they think that analytical meditation is Vipassana and stabilizing meditation is Shamatha. But actually, analytical and stabilizing meditation are not necessarily either shamatha or vipassana, but they are types of meditation that can lead to either shamatha or be used to develop either shamatha or vipassana. The accomplishment of shamatha and vipassana by conjoining analytical and stabilizing meditation was described above in a different chapter of the book. Moreover, if practiced profoundly, either of these types of meditation will result in the achievement of both samadhis. So he's implying that there's a shamatha samadhi and a vipassana samadhi, and we saw this before, that way of looking at samadhi. Therefore, with regard to their essential point, analytical and stabilizing meditations are ultimately the same. Now, there's a sort of bias. We, we, uh, Rimshay talks about us being the uh, practice lineage and the profound treasure, and I, I neglected to, sorry, to uh, include that excerpt where he, he says, uh, talks about the practicing tradition and the scholar's tradition and how we are the practice tradition of the yogi as opposed to the uh, scholarly tradition of the pandita. 
some of the implication that we don't do a lot of analyzing meditation, but we do primarily stabilizing meditation. But um, here we have the idea that they're they're ultimately the same. And so we'll have a couple of readings on that, but uh, the root text goes on and sort of concludes the whole presentation of Shamatha and Vipassana with this presentation of there being three stages. First, by childlike concentration. That sounds easy. <laughs> Deceptively so. One perceives signs such as smoke. You see, you see smoke and lights and shifting uh, sense perceptions and so forth. Uh, by the discrimination of, so that's the first stage, by the discrimination of phenomena. The sameness of pairs of opposites is realized. We see equality or, or equalness uh, or one taste in Vajrayana and supreme concentration, samadhi, is accomplished. And then by focusing on suchness, the true nature of reality, of indivisible emptiness and luminosity, all phenomena are seen to be emptiness, which in turn is realized to be peace by nature. Nirvana. According to the scriptures, there are three stages to the development of concentration. And presumably, concentration is a translation in this case of samadhi, but I'm not sure. First, by means of childlike concentration. So, this idea of childlike concentration, the idea of it being childlike, is uh, this analogy of. Uh, um, if you were to take a young child and put that ch child, bring that child up to KTD. Has anybody here ever been to KTD? Karma Triana, Dharma Chakra? Or a, like a traditional Tibetan center and monastery uh, place with like, you've seen like these elaborate Tibetan shrines. Anybody? You can see them online as well. But uh, the Tibetans are like, uh, famous or uh, incredibly skilled at elaborate shrines. Just huge amount of colors. Every space is, is covered with different colors and shapes and forms and offerings and, and brocade and gold leaf and colorful deities and everything. And so you bring your, your newborn, you know, your young one-year-old child or two-year-old child uh, who, you know, screaming and crying as you're, you know, driving up to KTD, uh, making a whole scene, and then you bring your child, your two-year-old child, into the shrine room, and they go, like, and they become completely silent, so, you know, according to this analogy. They're just, like, dumbfounded, looking at this shrine. They're just like, what is that? Is the idea, I don't know how realistic that might be, but the idea is that childlike concentration is this this concentration where we're just, our mind is just turns completely simplified of like, we don't know what to think. That's the idea of a child. Like concentration is, is the child has no comparison for what they're seeing. They have no context for understanding it or categorizing it, labeling it or reacting to it. So they're just totally dumbfounded. And at the same time, they're completely entranced by it and magnetized by it. So they just stare intently at it, taking in every detail, but without 
labeling it, without judging it, without commentary of any kind on it. Anyway, that's the childlike concentration. And in doing that, we're sort of detaching ourselves through shamatha practice primarily from the normal operations of continual preoccupation with discursive thought where our mind sort of slows down and we start to then experience gaps and we're not uh, uh, absorbed in constant preoccupation. So that's the first stage. And traditionally this results in, uh, in uh, one of many different types of experiences and Rimshi goes through these, so I'll wait for that. But uh, basically they're, they're experiences that come about from detaching from our normal um, uh, mode of operation of like our operating system. Normally we see things and we're, we label them and we uh, classify them based on prior experiences and uh, um, we, re we know how to react to them and we're, our, our uh, conceptual mind like takes over from our perceptual framework. And what happens with the childlike concentration is we're sort of like uh, uh, breaking down the operation of the op the main operating system of our being between the sense perceptions and the conceptualizing mind. And the conceptualizing mind just like starts to skip and it just like can't gain any traction. And it, it doesn't know what to do with all these sense perceptions. It's just so overwhelmed by them and so unfamiliar that it just sort of gaps out and that creates a disjointedness between body and mind in the, in the sort of, in the neurological system of our being and the neurological level of our being so that we're, we begin to like experience things like uh, our visual field shifts back and forth or we hear with strange sounds or we see like firefly lights, little trace trailings and and trailings in the in our visual field, or um, a sort of murkiness in the visual field, which is what they're calling smoke. It's sort of like fogginess. Um, uh, so there's a traditional uh, set of ten such uh, types of vis uh, perceptual hallucinations that happen at this stage. Then by means of the concentration which discriminates phenomena mean, meaning investigates and understands the true nature of phenomena as being empty yet appearing, the illusion-like interdependent manifestations, so appearances uh, manifesting interdependently as a, uh, in an illusion-like manner and the total pacification of mental fabrications are realized as one taste so uh, the the normal uh, conceptualizing process that started to like uh, lose track in the first stage completely falters completely falls apart in the second stage and we have this thing, this famous phrase of the pacification of mental fabrications or the falling apart of uh, mental fabrication or mental complexity falls apart. And we experience all phenomena, all experience with a sense of sameness called one taste. And uh, the third 
let's see. By this, the mind acquires the ability to genuinely rest in the sameness of all pairs of opposites, so that the concentration has now become unmistaken and supreme. And so this is still the second stage. And then this second stage, you, by experiencing this sense of the oneness of all experiences, um, there, then there's no difference between being in meditation and not being in meditation, or between any different types of thoughts are are, indis are um, not indistinguishable, but are not significantly different. Different frames of mind, types of mind, types of thoughts, types of experience, are all of the same nature of awareness and emptiness. And then finally, the, through the concentration of focusing on suchness, so from that second stage of experiencing the sameness of opposites, of equalness of all phenomena, our attention shifts to the true nature of reality, suchness. And by focusing in a concentrated manner on that, we then experience the understanding of um, all phenomena to be emptiness, and that this emptiness is uh, by nature primordially peace, and there, thereby the effortless nature, i.e. enlightenment, is accomplished. And this completes the first part, being the explanation of the stages of meditation of Shamatha Vipassana, the basis of all samadhis. So... And we have, uh, let's see, we'll, let's go through one of these two articles on uh, analytical and resting meditation. So here we have from the moonbeams of uh, Tashi Namgyal, Mahamuja, core Mahamuja text that Trungpam relied upon as well. <clears throat> Something the meditation of the Parm. Panditas, Panditas are scholars, Indian type of scholar, is only analytical meditation. And that the meditation of the Kusalis are yogis. <coughs> Kusalis are meditation is only resting. Similarly, others think that the only thing scholars do is analyze in the context of study and reflection based on the scriptural systems. And that all the yogis do is rest in equipoise refer to an esoteric instructions that is not reality what it's like in reality scholars need the resting meditation or remain in equipoise with the object of meditation and yogis need the analytical meditation that cuts through misinterpretations superimpositions and denials in the context of the view and i talked about this last time or so that uh, superimposition and denials are these two types of misinterpretation in the uh, understanding of the uh, nature of reality. Superimposition is uh, believing things to have some continuity, some permanence, some true, true nature to exist with some you know, true nature or truly. And denial is the uh, absolute nihilism and uh, not accepting cause and effect karma. Those who don't use both analysis and resting will have difficulties discovering the true object of meditation because the view that is sought through critical investigation alone is an intellectually created view 
on the one hand, if you don't do resting meditation and only study. And the view that only involves resting stays at the level of a mental experience. So if you only cultivate the view from based on, the, on your understanding in meditation, it remains a conceptual mental experience. So we may, we may wonder how are the analytical and resting meditation defined? What are their difference? What are their differences? The terms analytical and resting are designated from the perspective of what they emphasize. Analytical refers to the meditative process that uses inferential cognition, logic reasoning as its path, and primarily determines the view by relying on critical investigation using scriptures and reasoning, while resting refers to the meditative process that uses direct cognition as its path and primarily determines the view through remaining in equipoise with suchness. The former is the meditation process that's based on the text of Noble Asanga. The former analytical meditation is affiliated with Asanga. Um, and the protector Nagarjuna, uh, in which the analysis of scripture and reasonings is emphasized. So uh, basically the sutra system emphasizes the analytical meditation. And the latter, the uh, resting meditation, is the meditation process transmitted from the great Brahman, which is a way of referring to Saraha, the grandfather of the Mahamudra tradition, and his main disciple, Shawaripa, and others in which remain in equipoise with the actual abiding state predominates. The view that's discovered through either approach must be the same, however, in terms of the abiding state, emptiness. So whichever you use as your main way of access, either resting or analytical meditation as the way in or as the predominant factor in achieving the understanding of the abiding nature, they must ultimately lead to the same place. And he quotes a famous Kagyupa master, Gotsangpa, the analytical meditation of Pandijas and the resting meditation of yogis have the same destination. However, the Kusali's approach is faster, which is why it's favored in our tradition. And let's skip ahead, let's see. Oh, uh, here's an interesting one that is sort of like in the Christian tradition. If you say that you can, uh, you can only go to heaven if you've accepted Jesus. I don't know if, if anybody has heard this before. If anyone knows anything about the Christian tradition, maybe there's somebody who's heard about the Christian tradition a little bit, and you've heard this that you can't go to heaven if you haven't accepted Jesus and believe in Jesus as the Lord, Savior, right? So the question is then, what happens to all those people that lived before Jesus lives? Are they, you know, doomed because they didn't believe Jesus is the Son of God? And similarly, he says, uh, uh, there are those who say that the view cannot be realized without relying on the scriptures and reasonings that specifically the true view cannot be relied, realized without relying on the Madhyamaka reasonings of Nagarjuna and uh, Arya Deva. So the question is, all those people who lived before them, they were screwed, if you believe that. Anyway, on the other hand, some think that when 
they analyze, they're unable to rest because they must analyze conceptually. And then when they rest, they cannot analyze because they must settle non-conceptually. So he gets to the main point, which is that the common understanding of these two types of meditation is as mutually exclusive. And he's going to dispel that notion. They regard analysis and resting to be incompatible. They are wrong for many reasons. And he quotes Kamala Sheila's Bhavana Krama, number one, the first stage of meditation explains that Prajna examines within a state of shamatha. So analytical meditation happens in stillness. And that the Prajna of equipoise al- analyzes so the uh, wisdom that comes from resting meditation um, is analytical. And he, he cites so, the, so we're we're talking about a non-conceptual analysis. Uh, well, he, he, there's there's two types. So uh, he then quotes, but the, but the resting. The resting, the prajna that happens in equipoise is basically a non-conceptual analysis, right? It's not con- completely. Because remember way back when when he was talking about how uh, shamatha should not be completely without thoughts. There should be a subtle level of thoughts that's tracking what we're doing. And right, that's but that's, those, are, those are more like cognitions, though, less discursive and more just sort of like knowing. Yes, okay, so it's it, there, there should be no conceptuality, but just like we saw recent, uh, a few minutes ago in the presentation of non-thought, that doesn't mean it's without thought. Right, but it's it's not like, you know, words in a row real slow either. That's right, and that rhymes. I like that. Uh, so Vasubandha says that there is Vipassana with both conceptuality analysis and Vipassana with no conceptuality, but with analysis of Vipassana with neither. All sorts of Vipassana. Vipassana analysis is often uh, used to ensure that the state of resting does not slip away. For example, during Shamatha, the rousing of alertness is an examination with the, the resting state. So uh, that alertness is that second quality of shamatha, the first being mindfulness. Certain people, i.e., the translator inserts who he's talking about. He's talking about Tsongkhapa and his followers, the Galupas, assert that only resting meditation is done in shamatha practice because alternating between analysis and resting makes it, imp- makes it impossible to perfect shamatha. They say that if Vipassana practice does not include analysis with discarding prajna, it vanishes. Such ideas are very wrong. If the former were the case, some of the objects of meditation in shamatha, such as purifying behavior and purifying afflictions, such as we saw listed by Kongshul last week, the meditations of the stages of uh, decomposition of a body and so forth, require analytical process um, and otherwise they would be unsuitable and would be inappropriate to arouse discerning prajna and forceful alertness during shamatha. If the latter were the case, the vipassana described as the pacification of discernment at the end of the analysis done by discerning prajna would be illogical. Why would, you, if, if there were no discernments 
along with uh, prajna, then why would you talk about the pacification of them happening as their culmination? But their necessary preparatory phase of the culmination of prajna is the discernment, the analytical discernment. And the teachings on non-conceptual vipassana, unmoving vipassana, found in the texts and the stages of meditation also would be invalid. If, if one had this uh, uh, one-sided view that um, Vipassana always had to have analysis in it, then when, when texts refer to non-conceptual Vipassana, how would that jive? There's no analysis or unmoving. Same thing with Vipassana. There's no analysis. How could that be? Further, those who advocate such positions then have to say that there's no shamatha during analysis and no vipassana during resting because they assert that analysis is exclusively conceptual analysis and shamatha solely non-conceptual because they assert that during resting meditation vipassana vanishes and there's no discerning prajna. If you say those things, there are huge absurd consequences. The unification of shamatha vipassana would be impossible and there can be no common locus. <clears throat> which is a fancy way for saying no uh, similarity, no no uh, overlap for direct non-conceptual cognition and Vipassana. In other words, Vipassana has direct non-conceptual cognition as well as analytical cognition. So, okay, how do you explain this? What's the roles? In the context of shamatha, resting meditation predominates in keeping with the practice tradition of the nine stages of resting the mind. It is taught, however, that it's necessary to do analytical meditation, which one samadhi has improved. You know, So once you've achieved a certain level of shamatha, you need to do analytical meditation. When you're, and this is an interestingly confusing quote, when your concentration is improved, i.e. shamatha, then you should focus in detail with object, complicated objects like skandhas and dodges i.e. doing shamatha on those. And we saw those listed as objects of a, a, a developing skillfulness when they, they went through the four types of, of uh, objects for shamatha and vipassana earlier. There are also many types of analytical meditations recommended in the context of shamatha, such as meditating on ugliness, antidote for desire, kindness for anger, and so forth. Similarly, in the context of Vipassana, analytical meditation predominates in, calm, in keeping with the three or four stages of Vipassana. The three are the three gateways, and the four were the four levels of discriminating, fully discriminating, and so forth. However, at the end of the analysis, at the end of the culmination of the analysis, when the analysis comes to full measure, which is, the, which is a process of prajna, uh, transcendent intellect discernments are then pacified and nothing is seen. Since Vipassana does not vanish and that the true object is seen, and that is that is the true object seen in Vipassana, at this point we must use ready, resting meditation in Vipassana. So you can't just line up resting with shamatha and analytical with Vipassana. In other words, this is the conclusion here. Once we have achieved the unification of uh, shamatha and vipassana, we should primarily do resting meditation, though on occasion it will be necessary to alternate that with analytical meditation.
Now, you should be careful and um, not jump to conclusions that you've unified your shamatha and vipassana and you're ready to do this. You may may want to think twice before you've concluded that. Nevertheless, let's explain that as beginners, uh, when we experience agitation from an excess of analytical meditation and vipassana. Now that it, we, that's the sort of positive spin, whereas uh, you might experience agitation from lots of other things, discursive thoughts and neurosis and so forth. In those experiences, stages or situations, you should cultivate shamatha. And when we feel sluggishness from too much resting med- meditation and shamatha, or maybe he meant from too much rest, resting, from too much sleepiness, we should cultivate discernment, vipassana, in the sense of investigating our uh, state of being. When we can rest with equal amounts of shamatha vipassana, we should then cultivate equanimity without continuing to apply. And that we went through with the uh, antidotes and uh, the obstacles and antidotes. When you no longer have agitation or sluggishness or sinking, then you don't need to apply the antidote to them. Let's see, the roles of resting analysis and resting meditation of the view. Uh, certain people explain that when we're sustaining the view, first we must forcefully generate an apprehension of the emptiness of reality by analyzing with scriptures and reasonings, then practice a little bit of resting meditation on that. So this is, section is quite interesting because it gets into, like, so how do we meditate on emptiness? How do we actually do emptiness meditation? And he says, the sort of uh, simple version that you might, that people might come up with into doing emptiness meditation is that we might come up with like a conceptual version of emptiness by reading the scriptures and doing some analysis. And then we may take that conceptual uh, creation that we call emptiness into our resting meditation and focus on it. He says if we were to practice resting meditation for a long time, it would simply become shamatha and any vipassana would vanish. Therefore, uh, without, you know, if we just do resting meditation, vipassana disappears. Therefore, they say we must analyze as before and meditate while alternating analysis and resting in this way. I'm sorry, some people say that. If if we uh, take our conceptual version of emptiness into meditation and uh, um, and just focus on that, then it would become shamatha and vipassana would vanish. This is illogical. Later I'll explain the reasons why. Um, if we have any kind of apprehension of the emptiness of, a re- of reality that arises based on scriptures and reasonings, we won't get beyond grasping at emptiness, consequently will not develop the correct correct view for Vipassana. That being the case, practicing resting meditation on that apprehension is not So this is a little confusing, but basically he's saying uh, if we rely entirely upon the apprehension of emptiness from analysis, 
we will still be grasping at emptiness and consequently will not actually be able to experience Vipassana. So if we, if we separate Shamatha and Vipassana in this way, um, if in their also, approach... Also, isn't he also saying that if you bring a conceptual idea of emptiness, that's not the place, not the way to do it? Right. Uh, if in their approach analysis and resting are always alternated, then even though those who rest evenly in the view will be unable to master it, because they say that it is impossible to perfect shamatha when analysis and resting are alternated and so forth. Sorry, this part is a little bit uh, repetitive. He's saying, you know, it's illogical basically to separate these two in that way. Um, it's also illogical that once we give rise to the view in which shamatha and vipassana are unified, if we do not repeatedly analyze it, it refers to being just shamatha. So he's talking about the Galupas here who say that even after we've achieved the union of shamatha and vipassana, we, we, we must continue to analyze, otherwise it becomes shamatha. And he says, uh, in response, he says, when the view in which Shamatha and Vipassana are unified has arisen, one pointed resting meditation on just that view, your resting meditation becomes Shamatha and Vipassana completely, and that is the unification. Whereas the Galupas are saying, if, if you just rest in that unification, then it reverts to Shamatha. Anyway, this is sort of like a little bit of an obscure argument between the, the tradition. Um, shamatha is simply to sustain sorry uh, sustain the stream of mindfulness that does not consider anything other than its object of meditation resting right within the view is to ascertain the emptiness of inherent nature and then sustain the stream of freedom from elaborations that is concordant with that emptiness. So here is like he's summing up the, the correct version. In Shamatha we sustain the stream of mindfulness that does not flit about but stays settled on its object. And in this case the object is the view of emptiness so that we rest right within the view <coughs> of emptiness of inherent nature and we sustain that quality of Vipassana, which is freedom from elaborations, by staying settled, resting in that emptiness. Uh, let's see, if last, uh, let's, we're just about at the end of this, then we, uh, then we may ask, so what are the roles of analysis and resting and sustaining the view? First, while investigating the view, the prajna arising from listening and reflection cuts through misinterpretations concerning the key understanding of the nature of reality in the sense of uh, concepts and non-conceptual phenomena called specifically and generally characterized phenomena. <clears throat> so first we understand those. <clears throat> we understand concept and reality by study and contemplation. 
and that gives rise to a certain level of prajna. That's our first step for inducing certainty. Um, this is crucial, like showing a horse the racetrack. So we're sort of showing our mind. This is this is the path. This is where we're going. We're going to. We're going from conceptual world to non-conceptual world. However. For investigating the correct view, the discerning prajna risen from meditation is the most is of the utmost importance. So, it's it's uh, we have to begin with outside of meditation, understanding emptiness. But then we have to understand emptiness in meditation. When we look and analyze with prajna, without relying on inference. So when when uh, inference involves. Uh, listening and reflection. But without inference, we have direct experience of emptiness in meditation, direct experience of non-conceptuality. Non-conceptual mind experiences emptiness directly. We're able to directly comprehend that all phenomena lack any nature or, or essence, and that very discernment will be experienced as disappearing and not existing with any essence, without any essence. So if you have a genuine experience of direct non-conceptual experience of emptiness, then the experience itself dissolves. And that's, that's called the genuine view. When we don't hold that understanding as being anything in itself. You know, when you look at through the four stages of the Vipassana practice of seeing, uh, appearances as empty and seeing the perceiver as empty and then seeing the understanding as empty and then letting go completely. Looking and analyzing in that way is analysis with the prajna of equipos, combining resting and analytical meditation, in which the stream of mindfulness during resting meditation is not lost, so we continue to be mindful of emptiness. It's not analysis involving the conceptual process of terms and reference, the labeling process. And the result is that when the prajna of equipoise, the prajna of stillness, examines, its non-observation of phenomena is the genuine observation. So when prajna the, the analytical investigation quality of prajna based upon shamatha gets to the point of experiencing no experience, then it is actually resting in the, in the genuine view. As long as you're seeing something, as long as you're experiencing something, you're still conceptualizing. You're labeling what's happening. So when that process of conceptualizing your experience, labeling your experience dissolves, then that's genuine prajna. So after discernment, after analysis, it's self-pacified. It sort of burns itself out. That image of the firewood burning itself out. There's naturally an absence of seeing anything whatsoever. And that is seeing the true nature. Your typical Buddhist contradiction. What does seeing the ultimate mean? It's the absence of seeing any phenomena. When the prajna of equipoise examines its non-observation of phenomena, 
is genuine observation. For those reasons, when we are investigating the view, at first we definitely must engage in analytical meditation using our discerning prajna within meditative equipose. So we, initially we take a certain level, a certain uh, sort of uh, type or, or uh, activity of analytical meditation within our shamatha in, in order to do vipassana. However, once we've discovered the view, which is not the view being not discovering any experience or object, if at any point our intellectual process of apprehending characteristics makes our state of mind unworkable, so when that non-apprehension leads to a dullness or leads to agitation, sinking or... or uh, agitation, then we should go back, we should then do whatever analytical meditation is appropriate to sharpen our mind. When we have incontrovertible certainty in the view, we should do resting meditation right within the view on all occasions that create familiarization with that view. There's no need to alternate with analytical meditation. The relative scriptures, my sources will be provided to those who ask for them. The author says. So anyway, we're out of time once again, and so we'll do. Uh, we'll go through Rimshay's version next week at our last class, along with our celebration and and uh, discussion, hoping to get. Uh, We're humming there. I know my uh, my uh, computer's the battery is just about out. So I had to plug in again. Did you see? I got a little sign that came up and said I'm below 10%. Did you guys see that? So the screen sharing doesn't show everything that goes up on the screen, does it? Just the document. So, just the document. Just the facts. What the else? The turning screen share. <laughs> Comments. Questions, suggestions, thoughts, reactions, Andrew. It's like like reading that is like reading like Shakespeare or something. I'm so glad that you're not giving us a test on it. It's unbelievable. It, does that does that mean that it's very clear or that that it's sort of convoluted? I mean, reading like Shakespeare. There's so many words that I don't understand altogether. <laughs> It's like reading a legal brief, but you know, it. I, I think it's very poignant. I, I think he really uh, cuts to the chase in the conclusion. Everything before the conclusion is just his reasoning, yeah. his reasoning over and and circular and in all different ways, from all different angles, but his conclusion is... The conclusion was crystal clear. Yeah. yeah the conclusion was crystal clear. <laughs> yes, some of it, you know, there's like a, between the author's uh, sort of uh, complicated way of presenting things and then the translator's attempt to get it right and then my attempt to understand it and emphasize the, the phrases correctly. Not always, not always completely clear or simple. But as uh, Kevin says, the conclusion is pretty clear. 
So hopefully people were able to read the rest of the package and uh, I think you'll agree with me. There's some wonderful stuff in there by Rimshe that's worth going through. There's I this funny little... The next one, not the Rimshe one, the analytic medicine. Is it awareness? Is that what it is? Yeah, I love that one too. Tempo Gansha, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, so Rimshe's uh, commentary. So, th yeah, that one, like, uh, I don't know how that got in here. It's like a little bit of a, of an explanation of how to do Mahamudra practice. And I don't know, that must have been a mistake. I'm really sorry that, that, to slip that in here and confuse you with Mahamudra practice. But it was the same gremlins that put in that Vajrayana stuff, right? Yeah, earlier on. Yeah, just these things somehow appear, and it must be karmically auspicious. I think is the only way to view it, and that maybe, maybe actually it's a good thing, and you could check that out. But yeah, so that was like, well, okay, here's here's a, a, a nice presentation of what you actually do in Mahamudra meditation, how how you apply shamatha Mopasana. Well, I'm I'm happy the gremlins uh, did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank God for the gremlins, huh? <laughs> okay, so let's uh, conclude somehow here. What do we do? Share screen. There we go. And we're chanting. Uh, by this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. The stormy waves and birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regent's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, putting up with the uh, convolution. Convolutedness. Have an well. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank well. you. See you next week for our celebration. Take care.